welcome to Themis Podcasts. Themis is a risk management firm specialising in financial crime. Our aim of these podcasts is to bring you interesting news, interviews and recordings of our exclusive events from the world of financial crime. Working Towards a World Without Slavery, an interview with Unseen. In this podcast, Nadia O'Shaughnessy, director of the Themis Think Tank, talks to Justine Curl, a director at leading UK charity Unseen, about the work that Unseen does to combat modern slavery, including via the National Modern Slavery Helpline that has been operating since 2016. Justine tells us about trends and challenges associated with the fight against modern slavery in the UK over the past five years. Hello and welcome to this Themis podcast, which we're recording as part of our research and outreach programme about modern slavery and the UK's financial services industry. I'm Nadia Shaughnessy, director of the Themis Think Tank, and I have the great pleasure to be interviewing Justine Carroll today. Justine is a director at Unseen, a leading UK charity that has been operating the National Modern Slavery Helpline since 2016. And we're really privileged to have them on board as an official partner of the latest phase of our ongoing Themis Modern Slavery work. Justine joined Unseen in 2016, following a long and illustrious career in the civil service, during which she held a variety of operational and policy posts working across a number of government departments. For the last five years of her civil service career, Justine was the Modern Slavery Senior Policy Advisor in the Home Office and led on the development of the UK Modern Slavery Act, including the Transparency in Supply Chains provision and business guidance. Since joining Unseen, Justine has been called upon to provide her insight and experience on the issue of modern slavery to media, law enforcement agencies, safeguarding professionals, and the private sector. She has specifically provided support to a number of key businesses on developing their response to supply chain transparency and is highly regarded in this field. Justine, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to have you on the podcast and I really look forward to hearing your insights. So I wonder if you could start by telling us a bit more about Unseen and the work that you do there. Thank you. Um, Unseen is a modern slavery charity. We've been around for about 12 years and we do a number of key things. We provide direct survivor support services to men and women through our safe houses and reintegration and outreach support. Uh, we also equip stakeholders. So what we mean by that is uh, providing education and awareness raising to the police, law enforcement bodies more widely, uh, border force, the GLAA, and also um, the um, NHS, as well as more increasingly businesses. Um, and then we influence systemic change. So we work with the UK government um, and we try and influence policy, not only here in the UK, but also overseas. And obviously, as you've mentioned, we run the UK wide modern slavery and exploitation helpline, which we set up in 2016. Um, and the whole premise of what we do is to end modern slavery. 
Um, we want to end modern slavery in our lifetimes. We know that's a really, really challenging aspiration, but it's something that we're really committed to doing. Um, and the only way we can do that is by working collaboratively with our partners, including businesses across all sectors and industries. Fantastic. Such an important portfolio of work and real privilege to be partnering with Unseen on, on this project. So, um, as we've already mentioned, Unseen has been operating the UK Modern Slavery Helpline since 2016. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about how trends have changed over the past five years since the helpline started. So how has the scale and nature of this horrible crime been evolving in the UK? Well, I think even from my time in the Home Office around 2011, 2012, very, very limited understanding of what modern slavery is. Um, and how it can manifest itself. And I think it was always seen through the guise of sexual exploitation, which was most prevalent and it was most known about. I think over that time and since we set up the helpline in 2016, we've really seen a shift in, in that understanding. So much more prevalence around labour exploitation and forced labour, a real prevalence around criminal exploitation, but also recognising that there are cases of domestic servitude and uh, sexual exploitation is still, still very prevalent. So, you know, we've seen an, a much bigger increase in labour exploitation. Um, and for me, I think that's very much around the awareness raising and the education piece of work that we do, um, raising awareness with the general public. Um, and the public will generally spot issues related to forced labour and labour exploitation because it's in sectors and industries that we interact with on a daily basis. So if you think about issues such as those in car washes or nail bars, you know, they're on our high street and they're areas that the general public will see. And if they think something's concerning and we get our awareness raising activities right, then the public will spot those and they'll know what to do when we get more and more calls from the public. Obviously, that's changed over the last 12 to 18 months with the pandemic, and, and we've seen a different shift in terms of uh, labour exploitation, so fewer cases in those nail bars and car washes being highlighted, but a greater prevalence in construction, in the food um, and agriculture sector, including processing and packaging, as well as increases in logistics and transportation. And if you think about how many uh, times we've all used online shopping in recent weeks and recent months, we can see um, why and how the, the issue of modern slavery is, is most prevalent in places like logistics. Great, thank you very much. And I'll certainly come back to the issue of COVID because I think that's really key to touch upon later. It's also heartening to hear about the increased awareness that you've seen amongst the general public in terms of modern slavery over the past five years or so. Um, and I wanted to talk a bit about our findings because um, this trend hasn't necessarily been seen by us in the financial services industry specifically. Earlier this year, we published a report that looked at the links between modern slavery and the financial services industry. 
And one of the key findings of our research was that there are still low levels of awareness of the prevalence of modern slavery amongst financial um, sector employees. In fact, 30% of the employees that we surveyed said that modern slavery was not something that exists in this country. For many, there seems to be the perception that modern slavery is something that was abolished 200 years ago or something that happens far away in garment factories in Asia. But it is, of course, very much a problem in the UK. National referral mechanism figures for quarter four of 2020 state that 57% of potential victims claimed exploitation in the UK only. And the most common nationality referred to the NRM were UK nationals who accounted for 31% of all potential victims. Would you agree that there still is a misperception of what modern slavery is and means in the UK? Absolutely. I think we've come a long way in the last 10 years in terms of raising awareness, but there is still so much more to do. It's amazing how many times I have conversations with members of the public or people from businesses, people representing businesses who will say, yes, it might be a problem, but it doesn't happen here, does it? Or it's not something that would affect us. And I think really getting people, whether that's a member of the public or whether that is a business, to understand that actually every decision we make could have implications for those who may be caught up in exploitation or modern slavery. And then when you add in um, the stats around UK nationals, um, it's then very evident that this is not just about foreign migrant workers, um, something that's happening overseas in, in you know, far off places, that it is actually happening in the UK. Um, and it is happening on our doorsteps. You know, we have calls and contacts related to situations being reported right across the UK. There is no area within the UK um, that we have not had a call or report about a potential situation of modern slavery. Um, and, and I think that's the most frightening statistic. The helpline has been um, a fundamental tool in the fight against modern slavery, um, but it is just the tip of the iceberg. It's still a very hidden crime. It's still very complex. There are vulnerable people at the, at the heart of what we're talking about. Um, and when victims don't even recognize themselves as a victim, when they think that they're better off in an exploitative situation than they would be if they were out of it and, and potentially more, even more destitute, um, then we have that problem and that understanding. Um, I'll never forget a, a, a person who said to me, well, why would a six foot man um, you know, be in a situation of labor exploitation when they could just walk away? But it's the lack of understanding around the coercion, the manipulation, the threats of violence and the actual violence that's meted out to those victims, but also the victims of families as well. Uh, that's what keeps people in these exploitative situations. Um, and first and foremost, we need to help them out of those situations and we need to raise awareness of, of individuals who may come into contact, whether that's a frontline professional in a statutory agency, whether that's somebody within a business or whether that's a member of the public 
um, procuring goods and services for themselves. We need to raise that awareness and we need to make sure that people understand the signs to spot and where they can go to seek help and advice. Absolutely. Um, and really great work that you are doing there. So I'm interested, who mostly contacts um, you via the helpline about a potential case of modern slavery? Are they, is it mainly the potential victims themselves or individuals who are in direct frequent contact with the victim? Or is it just members of the general public who have spotted something suspicious? For us, it's generally the members of the public. So, um, you know, spotting those signs and reporting concerning situations. But we do have a significant number, and we, we believe this is significant, um, for potential victims contacting them us themselves, you know. And, and that ranges between kind of 6 or 7% right the way through to 20%, depending on which type of exploitation they are experiencing. But we have a further large percentage of individuals contacting us who will be in direct contact with a potential victim. And that's really crucial as well, because we can corroborate the information that they're giving us. We know and understand more about the situation. And therefore, our advice and guidance can be related to that. We can understand what the potential victim wants, and then we can work out who we need to um, involve in this. Is that the police? Is that the Gang Masters and Labour Abuse Authority? Is that uh, some support mechanism? How do we um, facilitate and work with the individual to get them to the services that they need? without making their experience and or situation worse. So, you know, we always put at the centre of whatever we do um, the element of do no harm. So we want to make sure that we safeguard and protect anybody that's at potential risk of harm. Great, thank you. And do you feel as though you have the kind of the legislative and governmental support um, for the cause? I know you were heavily involved in the development of the UK's Modern Slavery Act, which was, of course, a groundbreaking piece of legislation at the time. Um, and I know the government is committed to making changes to the act following its review and consultation last year. But do you think that there is a danger that companies adopt a kind of compliance approach of what do I have to do to comply rather than striving for best practice? And should the Modern Slavery Act be strengthened further um, or should companies be encouraged to continue to, to adopt voluntary approaches that work for their business? Great question. I, I think that the legislation has been a game changer um, and it is necessary. Um, but legislation can often be a blunt instrument. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that people do what they're meant to do or they fully comply. Um, I absolutely agree. I think compliance um, is really around a tick box exercise. I think we need to get into the language of continuous improvement and so that we don't stand still. We don't tick that box and move on. We're actually always thinking about this. How can we do good business? How do we apply appropriate due diligence into everything that we do to minimise all of those risks related to workers and vulnerable workers? So for me, that's that's absolutely critical. Um, I think Section 54 was the groundbreaking element of, of the Modern Slavery Act 
you know, we were the first country in the world to introduce that. Uh, the only other place that really had anything like that was California. So the state of California in the US. Um, and so it really was meant to be a nudge factor. And, um, you know, we talk about the, the kind of um, spiky carrot. So, you know, it should be both a stick and a carrot for businesses you know, create a level playing field, tell us what you're doing about the issue of modern slavery and how you're protecting your workers. Um, and then look at how you can improve um, in an iterative manner over the next three, five, 10 years, recognizing that this is not something that's going to be resolved in the next six to 12 months. Um, I think, unfortunately, we don't even meet compliance. If you think about the fact that we probably still have somewhere in the region of 3000 businesses that still have not put out their first statement. And we've had the Modern Slavery Act for over five years in operation for Section 54. I think, yes, we need to improve compliance with the legislation, but then we also need to strengthen those um, those legislative um, frameworks to make sure that we do get businesses actually doing what they're meant to do to, to look at this around, um, you know, changing behavior. It has to happen from the top of an organization and it has to filter through. And we have to make sure that those who are recruiting others, particularly where that's temporary labor, where we've got procurement teams working with third party suppliers and subcontractors, and where we've got boardrooms making decisions on a daily basis about uh, quality, timeliness, and the price of goods and services that they're prepared to pay. All of that needs to come together to create an environment where we can genuinely mitigate those risks and where we can ensure that our supply chains will not be infiltrated by perpetrators of modern slavery. Absolutely agreed. And that's what, what was one of the key findings of our research, that a joint up enterprise wide approach is really key and it can't be a siloed cause that is championed by certain parts of a business and not others. Um, and I fully agree with you, you know, there are some really notable champions who are really blazing a trail in terms of good practice when it comes to um, positive modern anti-modern slavery practices. But for others, it seems to be real consequences in terms of financial penalties, reputational damage, investor pressure that need to serve as a real stick to, um, to encourage change. So a um, combination of both, as you say, does seem to be key. Um, so I wanted to, to go back to COVID. I read your very interesting recent report on activities during 2020, which um, showed a decrease in the number of contacts to the National Helpline over the past year. So as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is primarily down to COVID restrictions and fewer opportunities for people to contact the helpline rather than actual an actual reduction in cases. Um, so is this true? And are you finding that the pandemic is in fact exacerbating vulnerabilities and driving more people into exploitative situations? I think that is our assessment in terms of contacts to the helpline. So we saw a 27% decrease in calls and around a 9% decrease in web forms. Um, and, and I think most of those were a decrease in 
the members of the public contacting us about situations. So we saw similar numbers of potential victims themselves contacting us, and we saw an increase in the number of statutory agencies contacting us for help and advice. Um, so that was the shift we saw. Do we think that that is as a result of um, vulnerabilities being exacerbated? And it's really difficult to, to tell. I mean, obviously, our cases only went down by 4% from 2019. Um, but, but we know that, um, you know, that there's been less opportunity for um, members of the public to actually um, spot the signs because many of these sectors and industries and venues have not been open for a significant period during 2020. I think the pandemic... Um, the shift and the supply and demand of um, things like PPE and food um, has really meant that there's had to be a really um, transient workforce um, and to move those that workforce quickly. So I think that may well have created an environment where it's much easier um, for vulnerable people to, to be caught up in all of that. Um, but but the pandemic is ongoing. We've now um, and are experiencing um, Brexit, and we are already seeing and hearing from businesses that there are shortages of labour um, uh, because of the pandemic. There's been obviously less people moving across borders. Um, with Brexit, we were already starting to see migrant workers not coming to the UK um, as, as in as many numbers as we had seen previously. So I think there will be a challenge and that might create an environment where um, the, the vulnerabilities will be exacerbated because there will be such a demand for temporary labour. And when we talk about this temporary labour, we're talking about the kind of lower end, lower skill, lower paid, out in fields, picking vegetables in factories. Um, and we've seen some of that in Leicester over the last 12 months, again, rearing its head. Um, you know, anywhere where there is low paid, low skilled work, we do suspect that the, the vulnerabilities will be increased. And it's an area that we're working with businesses, with law enforcement and others to really raise awareness to make sure that if you do have any concerns about, um, you know, people working with you or for you down a supply chain, if you see something happening on a high street, that you actually know what to do, who to contact. Um, and we'd recommend contacting the Modern Slavery Helpline. You know, it's 365 days a year, open 24-7, um, it's confidential and independent, and we really can help and support, you know, whether you're a business wanting advice and guidance or whether you're a member of the public or indeed a potential victim looking for help to get out of a situation or into support services. Very interesting. And, and also emphasises why oversight over all aspects of supply chains and indeed direct business operations is so key because of how shifting external events can impact different elements of supply chains and create new vulnerabilities and new risks in response to changing circumstances. So I wanted to zoom back in on the financial sector again. And as you mentioned earlier, Justine, you lead Unseen's cooperation with businesses and you've worked with a large number of financial institutions specifically to combat non-slavery. What do you see as the greatest challenges for the financial services industry in particular in addressing this issue of modern slavery? 
I think one of the the key challenges is around that awareness raising and understanding that that it does genuinely affect uh, the financial services sector. I mean, if you think about the reason why um, you know individuals perpetrate modern slavery, it's to make money predominantly to make money um, and that money has to go somewhere and it's flowing through um, you know financial services sector all of the time um, and what we're trying to do is raise awareness of that and an understanding of that and saying you know you've got very good um, very good processes for anti-money laundering and very good processes for bribery and corruption and this is no different really there are key signs to spot within transactions, within activity, within behavior of individuals that will help you to assess situations and work out, well, is this something we need to be concerned about? I think the sheer magnitude of the issue, if you look at all of the um, suspicious activity reports that are probably generated um, by one organization, let alone the, the whole sector. Um, I, I think it's a real challenge to, to get in place processes that help you really understand is this uh, suspicious activity? Is this normal behavior? Um, how do we identify that from an individual perspective or from a, a business perspective? You know, the location is off often very important you know if if an individual is using the same atm withdrawing the same amounts of cash late at night and um you know that could be a sign if there are businesses in in red light district areas um where activity is unusual again that could be a sign and and it's just raising that awareness um both with uh the financial services sector around how they engage with other services and goods, as well as how they engage with um, their customers as well. Um, and what we're trying to do is, is help those businesses raise awareness with their customers, with their um, individual customers, with their business customers, with their staffing teams on the front line, also in financial crime teams, and, and really getting um, you know, organizations to think about this in a holistic sense. In, in everything that it does and making sure that, again, it comes back to that due diligence. Are we genuinely doing everything we can um, to prevent the risks? And do we know what to do if those risks manifest? Um, and, and how do we learn lessons from that moving forward to ensure that this doesn't happen again? Exactly, as you say, every abusive employer and trafficker is in it for the money. And so an understanding of red flags and patterns um, is just so key across the financial services sector. And also, as you mentioned, the leverage that financial institutions have can be so helpful in disrupting um, this crime. So Justine, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast today. It's been fascinating to hear your insights about the latest trends and challenges when it comes to tackling modern slavery in this country. I think this has been a powerful reminder to all that this terrible crime is much, much closer to home than we may think. There are an estimated 136,000 people living in conditions of modern slavery in the UK today, and no organisation is fully immune to potential linkages with these abuses, as we've discussed. And that's why joint up action to combat the issue is so important. So to our listeners, thank you for tuning in and have a nice day.
This podcast is the latest in a series of virtual discussions that we have published as part of our work addressing modern slavery and human trafficking. We are working in partnership with the UK Independent Anti-Slavery Commissioner to explore the ways in which the financial services sector can help address these terrible crimes. If you have time, I would encourage you to listen to the other podcasts in this series, which involve a range of expert speakers and highlight the excellent work being done by many of the industry's champions to combat modern slavery. You can find out more via our dedicated research website, www.crime.financial forward slash MSHT. Thank you for listening to the latest Themis podcast. We hope you found it interesting and informative. If you would like to find out more about Themis, get in touch with us via our website, www.crime.financial. You can also subscribe for future news and interviews.